Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As vaccines are starting to roll out across the country, and we're hoping that we're getting to the end of the pandemic very soon, I wanted to take a look back at the beginning of the pandemic and how many other products were being shelled out as coronavirus treatments. Vitamin C in particular was having a moment during the pandemic. Sales were surging, but you had to watch out for some that were offering it up as a coronavirus treatment. The FTC and the FBI were investigating health clinics and wellness centers for overhyping high-dose IV infusions of vitamin C as a way to prevent or treat COVID-19. For more on all the vitamin C hype, we'll speak to Brent Scrotenbohr, investigative reporter at USA Today. It's interesting. It's sort of taken almost like a, know, like a cult status. It almost seems like a religion. Vitamin C has almost become a religion and people really want to believe it does this and that in this scary time of pandemic. And we should say right off the top, I mean, vitamin C is very good for you. Everybody needs it. It's an essential nutrient. It does help your immunity. It's found in fruits and vegetables. And if you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, and you're, you're going to probably have a pretty good immune system and good overall health. So let's just make this clear. Vitamin C is good, okay? I mean, there's right. nothing really bad about it. You can take a lot of it, and, and, and probably the worst that's going to happen is you don't need all that you, that you think you do, that you might be overtaking it, but it, that you might just come out of your body in natural ways and not really have any effect. And so it's important just to establish that. But what the pandemic has done is there's a, there's fear out there about this invisible disease that nobody knows how to cure, prevent right now. And so people are kind of grasping at things that they think they know or think could help. And probably very predictably, we're seeing businesses that are going to try to push the envelope and try to say that, that mainlining vitamin C into your veins is going to prevent or cure COVID-19. And there, there's just no evidence to support that. And, and so we've seen like the federal government crack down on it because, you know, like the Federal Trade Commission has been investigating different businesses that, and what they say and how they advertise. They regulate against deceptive business practices and deceptive advertising. And they found dozens of businesses like wellness clinics that say that if you inject this into your vein through an IV, you are going to prevent yourself from getting COVID, et cetera. FBI, as you mentioned, they uh, raided a doctor's office uh, near Detroit in April where this doctor was very avid about this treatment. He was injecting this into their veins and saying it helped with COVID and he was also billing Medicare for it. You're not supposed to do that because it's not not an approved thing to bill Medicare for is something and, that and that's doesn't prob- really work. And yeah. that's probably where it started really going downhill because they're seeing these treatments for COVID-19. I think that's the way he was presenting them even in the billing process. And that's where it's going to draw a lot of scrutiny. But you write about how there's a history of misunderstanding with vitamin C. And as you mentioned, you know, I'm not taking away from it. As you mentioned at the top, it, it is good for you. But where did it go where it became got this cult status? That probably can be traced back to 1970 when a guy, a scientist named Linus Pauling, published a book called Vitamin C and the Common Cold. And he basically theorized that you take higher doses of it, it's going to give you better defenses. And 
That has been the subject of debate. Some say that's been discredited. Some say, well, it's arguable that it, it didn't get enough testing. The tests about it weren't that good and that there have been studies that have shown that while it can't prevent the common cold, which there is no cure for the common cold, there are some indications that and evidence that it could reduce the severity of a cold or, or the duration of it. And in, just in the general sense that because you need vitamin C as a general essential nutrient, it, it's going to give you better immunity in general. It's just as far as making specific claims about it, about helping against this condition or disease is where it gets a little bit dicier. There, There is actually a, a Linus Pauling Institute at, at Oregon State University that, that's involved in studying exactly how vitamins can and can't help. And, and one of the guys there told me that there just hasn't been enough rigorous study to know exactly how much of a benefit it provides for certain things. And that's where, you know, we get into the stuff that was theorized back in the 70s is, you know, I don't think it's been totally disproven, but it just needs a lot more rigorous study to know exactly what it's doing. Yeah, there's even clinical trials involving COVID-19 and vitamin C, but those could take years before reaching any conclusion. But people are still thinking it works. There was a March 2020 survey that said 21% of people in the U.S. thought that taking vitamin C probably or definitely prevented COVID-19 infection. So the thought is out there, but you just got to know that vitamin C is not an approved treatment for COVID-19 or a preventative for COVID-19. One of these things that's taken on a lot more popularity in recent years, and especially now during the pandemic, is these IV treatments. Now, you can you can find a lot of these in a lot of cities. There are wellness centers or naturopathic doctors that are, are selling this about $200 per treatment where they put it into your veins and you sit there and you get this big high-dose injections. And they generally sell that under the claim that it boosts overall immunity and, and good health. That, again, as I'm told, there's not really any evidence that having that big of a dose is necessary any more than just eating regular fruits and vegetables in a, in a normal good diet. It is generally safe. I mean, I've not heard any bad complications or people get this or any real horror stories about a vitamin C injection. But I guess the biggest risk then would be you're spending $200 on something you might not really need much more than having a lot of broccoli or strawberries in your diet. Right. You have to beware of the hype. Brent Scrotenbor, investigative reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. As we hope to get back to normal soon, one of the main keys to preventing COVID-19 indoors is proper ventilation. Health scientists that have started to issue recommendations to schools and businesses that want to reopen on how often indoor air needs to be replaced, as well as fans, filters, and other equipment that needs to be replaced. For schools, think open windows with fans, air purifiers, and upgraded HVAC systems. For more on how good ventilation can keep coronavirus particles at bay, we'll speak to Caitlin McCabe, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Scientists are seeing more evidence that indicates that COVID-19 can probably be spread through tiny aerosols that linger in the air, 
And so one way to tackle that among other initiatives like wearing masks and social distancing is having good ventilation in an indoor space, whether that's a classroom or an office or something else. And so the thinking is that you want fewer COVID particles accumulating in a room and ventilation, which is really just introducing clean air into a space and getting that existing air that may contain COVID particles out. So there are a lot of different strategies that scientists are looking at, whether it's opening windows, rejiggering HVAC systems, looking at portable air purifiers. So they've really started putting out some good solutions and walking uh, schools and offices through some different scenarios about how that can be achieved. Let's say for a school, ideally you would want open windows so you get clean air from outside. You want to use some fans to help circulate that air. And then you want to have some air purifiers with some HEPA filters, things like that. The two main ways of tackling ventilation are increasing outdoor air inside and then also having good filters that can filter out that contaminated air. And so it's really good if you have those systems working together. And a lot of modern HVAC systems can kind of tackle those on their own. And so if you have a really modern HVAC system, that's really helpful. But there are a lot of schools, as we know, that don't have HVAC systems or they have really outdated HVAC systems that might be decades old. And so that's why scientists are starting to issue some good guidelines about the things that you said, looking at air conditioning, window fans are a possibility, air purifiers, and more. About 41% of U.S. public school districts need to upgrade or replace their HVAC systems in at least half of their schools. So that's about 36,000 schools nationwide. That's a lot of money. And I think you pointed to Denver Public Schools, who was already doing some of this. How much money are they spending to revamp their HVAC systems? They're spending about $5 million. That's going to be spread over about 185 school and administrative buildings. And that's just purely for HVAC systems alone. So that's not looking at any other supplementary materials like those air purifiers that I just mentioned. So basically they're spending that to upgrade filters, to replace broken parts, to try to get more outdoor air flowing through the HVAC system, which is a good strategy that scientists recommend. But that's just one school district. And obviously this is going to be a challenge across the nation and even in workplaces too that might be working in older buildings. You know, we're talking about schools, for example, open the window, throw a fan in there. That's going to be really tough when winter comes around. What do you do? (laughs) Make sure every kid has two coats on just to keep that airflow going. That's going to be really hard. It is going to be really tough, and scientists acknowledge that, and so that's why they're really encouraging workplaces to make these HVAC investments now to really try to stock up on purifiers and make sure that these classrooms and other spaces have these portable air purifiers with HEPA filters, which are shown to be effective at filtering out airborne particles. So they're pushing for that now because you're exactly right. It's not going to be extremely possible to have the window open, you know, when it's snowing outside. And I think scientists are acknowledging that and trying to, you know, work with schools to get as much done right now as they can. Just back to a little bit to how the aerosolized particles can move around and infect people. You had a couple examples in your story. One was about a restaurant in China with a few people sitting in a poorly ventilated room Some of the people were seated as far away as 15 feet away from the infected person, but they still got it. So there have been several outbreaks like this. This restaurant in China is one of them, but there have been several other examples where people have been distanced further away than the six feet recommended distance that we all 
hear about so often and kind of have ingrained in our heads at this point. There have been cases where an infected person is in that room and people at further distances can still contract the virus. And so the thinking is it's because of these smaller aerosolized particles that are emitted when we cough, talk, sneeze, sing, do all these activities that we tend to do. So that's why ventilation is so important in that Chinese restaurant that I I referenced in the story You had no outdoor air supply on the floor where the patrons were sitting in that restaurant. They had exhaust fans in the wall, but they weren't turned on. And there were several other indicators that ventilation was really poor in that space. And so researchers are concluding that's one of the reasons why so many people, I think it was about 10 people total, became infected from that incident, including the one person who was kind of the index patient in that case. But that's why they think it spread. Caitlin McCabe, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. At the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, canine studies are being done to see if man's best friend can sniff out coronavirus. So far, they are doing a pretty good job of it. Nine dogs are currently enrolled in the study with the hopes that one day they might be able to pick out infected individuals, including those that are asymptomatic, in nursing homes, businesses, airports. Dogs have already been proven to be able to detect explosives and some diseases, such as hidden cancers, diabetes, and bacterial and viral infections. For more on these very good dogs, we'll speak to Francis Stead Sellers, senior writer at the Washington Post. Yeah, so this is a study being done by uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Working Dog Center. Um, They're based in Philadelphia, and there there are a couple of other very good studies being done around the world, one specifically at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And you mentioned, as you mentioned, dogs are very good at smelling. We know that. And these are, these are the, these dogs are being trained by the people who also work with um, special ops dogs, dogs that will do very high level um, scent work with explosives and things. So we know that many diseases do create a smell. Um, if you think about uh, people who have diabetes, they're known to have a fruity, certain smelling urine. Um, when people get sick, their breath often changes, and these can be signs of illness. So the question these researchers want to know is, is there a distinct smell attached to this new disease, the coronavirus that produces COVID-19 in humans and has been causing such disaster around the world? And that's the work they're doing, using the same sorts of equipment they would use to detect, to teach dogs to detect explosives. The way they do this is to take... Um, In this case, a deactivated form of the virus. Um, If they were doing an explosive, they would take the explosive and have the dog sniff it and reward reward them at the beginning for recognizing that smell. Then they put the smell on what's called a scent wheel, among many other tempting smells. And the dogs learn to recognize and get rewarded for recognizing the appropriate smell. After that, you can go out and test and see if the dog can recognize that smell among many, many other smells. And that's what I was witnessing in a place called Greencastle, Pennsylvania, at a dog training center a couple of months ago. I think this uh, program has been going on for like about 10 weeks or so now, and they're finding out that some of the dogs are actually really accurate in in predicting this. And they're hoping that if they can uh, detect that scent and really hone in on that, they could even find people who might be asymptomatic and have COVID-19. That's absolutely true. So what I was saying was sort of early on in this research, and the dog's accuracy was stunning. Um, they were they were testing for deactivated urine. This was urine that had come from positive patients at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and the Children's Hospital, and was once it was deactivated, was put into these cans that the doctor, the dogs were um, circling and looking for, and they were very very accurate. They can go from there to test other things like saliva. Um, 
also sebum or sweat. So sebum is the, the sort of sticky substance that's exuded on people's backs and will show up on T-shirts. They're going to ask people to wear T-shirts, people who've recently been tested, and then to return them and see if the dogs can recognize the smell on people's T-shirts. If that's true, um, and these early results look very promising, there is the possibility that dogs could one day be deployed in airports. Now, there actually is this week news of a a test that's a little simpler than this. It's actually taking... um, Samples of T-shirts, and this, this happened after my article was published, but taking samples of T-shirts in Dubai airport and dogs are being asked to look at those samples. And we haven't yet heard the results of those tests, whether they're accurate. But you can see there's a huge possibility here and also a huge possibility for using dogs in the first stage of developing electronic noses, which could be less invasive and can work 24-7 instead of, you know, the short day that a dog um, has to work. And these are kind of breathalyzer type uh, noses, the same things that are used in the perfuming industry. There are some doubts about using dogs uh, in this sense to uh, sniff out people with COVID-19. You know, some of the detractors say there's problems with scaling it up, things like that. But the accuracy could be there, but just the time that it takes to train the dogs might not be uh, the time yeah. and expense and um, the, so the accuracy is, is, seems as if it's very good at the moment, but the time and expense and then safety issues, of course, for handlers and dogs who could be deployed in airports. Um, we know it's a zoonotic disease, a disease that came from animals, and also this disease has moved into the animal population. So all those issues are extremely important in moving ahead with potentially deploying dogs, which is one of the reasons why an electronic nose could be so much more um, efficient and, uh, and safe, safe going ahead. What are the dog breeds that are being used in this uh, particular uh, study right now? So the, the one I saw was eight Labradors and one Belgian Malinois. Um, the Belgian Malinois was a dog that had a little bit more experience with other smells beforehand. Um, in London, they're using Spaniels, I believe, and some Labradors. And um, there's a French study, the study that's of, of sample T-shirts, and that's using Belgian Malinois. I asked about the dogs because the dog that's most famous for its nose, of course, is a bloodhound. And I said, why don't you use a bloodhound? And the trainability factor with a Labrador that wants so much to please or another working dog like a Spaniel makes them um, very, very inviting for these trainers. You know, what, which dog do you turn to if you want to have an easy dog to work with? And they, these tend to be typical working dog breeds like Spaniels and uh, Labradors. So in, in, the, in the end of this whole thing, though, um, you know, they're not necessarily sniffing out uh, COVID-19 itself. Uh, there's these things called vol- volatile organic compounds and this is how the virus would break down other cells in the body. And this is really what they're smelling, what they're sniffing out for. We actually don't know yet exactly what they're sniffing. And that's one of the mysteries hanging over this. And that's where the chemistry and physics will come in later in developing a, an electronic nose is narrowing down exactly which molecules people release. But we do know, you know, smells are chemicals, are molecules that are released from bodies and they change with sickness. So these volatile organic compounds we're shedding all the time and we shed different ones when we're sick. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they come out with some more concrete data after they're kind of done training these dogs. And maybe it is something that can scale up. It'll be, uh, like I said, just super interesting to see uh, a follow-up on all of this. It'll be fascinating. It'll be fascinating. I, I just know that the people who are doing this work are very keen to do it safely and in a scientifically appropriate way. So that's another reason why it's not, you're not going to see dogs tomorrow um, right. when you land at an airport in the U.S.
Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.